Father, thank you for the gift of this morning and that we can worship together as a church family. Thank you for this season of Advent and all that it means. Thank you for the kids and the kids' choir tonight. We are so excited, Lord. And, and thank you for a chance just to open up your word together. Uh, we come in humility with open hands just asking that you would uh, teach us, that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would shape our hearts and have your way in this place. Uh, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, all right. Hey, welcome to FBC. We're so glad that you're with us. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. Reading. Again, we're glad you're here on such a special day, as you already saw, right? Kids' choir tonight, the Advent reading, so many exciting things happening here this December. So welcome. Um, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, where we are continuing this uh, sermon series for Advent that we've titled um, The Fifth Gospel. Which, again, as we mentioned last week, is not some new heresy that I'm introducing because, uh, you know, um, if you are familiar with the Bible or with church, there are four Gospels, uh, four primary accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so this series is not, again, me adding to that. I wrote my own little story or anything like that. Uh, but actually, many early church uh, fathers and leaders looked to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, and they referred to that book as the fifth gospel because there was so much in it that spoke of Jesus, that spoke of the coming Messiah, all these promises and prophecies pointing forward generations about who Jesus would be and what he would come to do. And so we, for Advent, are just walking through Isaiah and taking a few passages to see what it tells us about Jesus. Now, as we get started, you should know I love my kids, but it's very hard for me to want to be close to them when maple syrup or honey is involved. When we have pancakes, syrup, and butter, when we have cornbread and butter and honey, I have a thing, seriously, ask Amber, about um, just sticky hands and sticky counters and sticky faces with sticky syrup. Uh, it's probably the quickest way to make me want to stay at arm's length. Can anyone else relate with that? Honey? No? No one? Okay. All right. <laughs> Guess it's seriously, like throw up, dirty diapers, whatever. I, I can handle it. But syrup, honey, I'm out. And maybe for you, again, you're lying to me and no one else has that um, reality, I guess. But for you, maybe it's spiders or bugs or it is dirty diapers. There are certain things that make you want to say, oh, I'm just going to stay at arm's length from this person or whatever it is that's going on. And maybe it's noisy chewing for you. I don't know. Um, and sometimes the reason I mention this is sometimes we think that that's how God looks at us in all of our mess and all of our sin and all of our difficulty. He looks at us kind of like I look at syrup or you look at noisy chewers or uh, we look at something that's inconvenient and messy. We just want to stay away. Or if we do engage, you know, as a parent with a child, it's because we have to, right? And I have to jump in, but it's kind of like I'm, I'm uncomfortable all the while. Author Dane Ortland uh, says that sometimes we think of, of God reaching out and touching us times the way a little boy reaches out and touches a slug for the first time. With their face all kind of scrunched up and cautiously extending an arm, maybe even letting out a little yelp as he makes contact and then instantly withdrawing. Sometimes that's our natural 
assumption, intuition about what God is like, but I have to ask us this morning, is that really true about God and about how he views us? Now, last week we were in Isaiah chapter 1. We're skipping ahead a little bit to Isaiah chapter 7, and I want you to see as we start chapter 7 that there's some stress and there's some fear and there's some anxiety involved in the text. Look at it with me, Isaiah 7 verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind." I know a lot of names and a lot of places that sound uh, you know, unfamiliar to us, but here's the heart of what's going on. The eighth king we're introduced to, King Ahaz. He's ruling in the 8th century BC in Judah. And as Isaiah records, it says Ahaz was terrified because two foreign kingdoms had allied against him. They wanted to wage war and conquer and ultimately kill the king. Verse 2 even says, you saw it, that his heart and the hearts of the people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They're shaken in their boots, the text tells us. They're terrified because these foreign nations are coming to kill them. Now, I've never had someone trying to kill me that I know of. And hopefully you can say the same, that you've never faced a threat like that. But we all are familiar with the feeling of fear and anxiety and an uncertain future and all kinds of threats that come our way. And so we should be careful not to look at Ahaz and say, wow, he was facing life and death danger. I can't really relate with a situation like that. What could I learn from this scenario? And yet I think we can relate with Ahaz more than we realize. See, I was listening recently to pastor and author Steve Cuss. He's, uh, again, pastor, actually a, cl- a clinician. He's an expert in anxiety. He has some fascinating research and work that he does with people dealing with anxiety. And he explains in some of his material, that there are, of course, different kinds of anxiety and fear that we face. Uh, There are things relating to trauma, of course, uh, PTSD. There's the category known as uh, acute anxiety, which is when we face life and death anxiety. Like Ahaz here, someone literally wants to come and kill you. Your, Your life is literally in grave danger. You or someone you know is facing a real threat. Maybe it's your, your child uh, wanders away in the store or in the mall and you don't know where they are. That's a real dangerous scenario. Maybe it's a situation like, uh, I just saw this movie trailer um, for a movie called Cocaine Bear. And it's about a bear that ingests a large amount of illegal drugs and then uh, attacks people in like the Georgia wilderness. Apparently it's based on a true story of, again, Pablo Escobar. And... Um, And so those people in that story were in uh, a real-life danger. Okay, that's uh, acute anxiety right there. A bear uh, on drugs trying to kill you. Now, you probably didn't have, you know, pastor makes a cocaine bear reference in a sermon on your bingo card this morning. (laughs) 
and yet here we are. Okay, that's, but that would be a situation where you are in real life danger, acute anxiety, but not all anxiety is acute anxiety. Right? There's other categories, general anxiety disorder. There's um, also what's known as chronic anxiety, which is actually Steve Cuss's expertise, and it's uh, all about perceived threats. Perceived threats, these anxieties that actually we live with quite regularly related to failure or, or we're worried about not meeting expectations or we're worried about being rejected or not performing well on a test or countless situations at work that you might face. We all live with, with various forms of chronic anxiety, but the, the key is we're not in real life and death danger. But, but here's what researchers found, uh, is that your body can't tell the difference between acute anxiety and chronic anxiety. So when you're worried about that presentation or that uh, situation with your finances or what your family thinks of you or that awkward family dinner coming up or you're worried about being left out or being rejected, your, your, your body is actually often telling you that, that you're in life and death danger. You ever felt that, right? Like, I know this situation isn't that uh, severe, and yet I feel deeply worried, scared, anxious. I can't seem to shake this. It's because, again, your, your anxiety and your body's basically lying to you. You have to train yourself how to respond to that. So this is all kind of a side note, a little side excursion here. But, but the point of, of saying all of this is that maybe we can relate with King Ahaz in chapter 7 more than we think to what he might be feeling as his life is actually in danger. And in the text, God does what he often does. He gives a word of comfort, right? In verses seven through nine, he basically says, Ahaz, I'm gonna summarize, he says, Ahaz, don't worry, these plans against you, these foreign kings uh, coming together to attack you, their plans won't succeed. And so I want you, King Ahaz, to stand firm in your faith in me, and God says, I'm so sure of this that I want you to test me on it. He says, I'm going to give you a sign to prove it, to prove that you're going to be okay, to prove that I'm going to pull you through this situation. And that's what we heard Pastor Ian read in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Pretty cool, right? God offers Ahaz a sign. Hey, you're going to be okay, and I, I want to prove it to you. So just you name it. You name the sign. I'll, I'll make it happen, and that will reassure you. I mean, think about what Ahaz could have said. What would we have said? If God came to you and said, hey, you're going to be okay, and ask for anything, I'll give you a sign to prove it to you. Right? God's in the sign business, right? Think of the plagues. He has shipped. Think of Jesus turning water into wine, thinking of healings and miracles. God is constantly wanting to reassure us. So he gives us this uh, blank check, sign, invitation to Ahaz. He could have said, okay, God, tonight I want you to turn the moon purple, and that will reassure me. God, could you do that? Or, or God, uh, okay, uh, I would love a carrier pigeon to drop a, a roast leg of lamb for dinner on my plate. If you could do that, that would really reassure me, and that would be a sign that would show me you're real. Or God, make kale taste good. I don't know, whatever it is, I'm going to get... Here, here it is. He had an opportunity, and yet, you notice what Ahaz says in verse 12? He says, no. No, God. Bold move, right? He says, I will not ask. I won't put the Lord to the test. Now, at first, you might hear that and say, that sounds rather pious. Like, this Ahaz, he's, he's on the right track. He's, he's not gonna, he says, I trust you, God, so much, I'm not even going to test you. And yet, 
that's not really what's going on here because it actually bothers the Lord. And we read elsewhere in 2 Kings chapter 16 that Ahaz, rather than trusting God in this stressful scenario, he actually puts his faith in the king of Assyria, in a different king, in a human power to come in and swoop in and save the day and help him. And so he's like, no, 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 thanks, God. I'm, I'm good, essentially. He tries to make it sound religious and spiritual and pious, but really it shows his heart is placing his trust elsewhere, not in the Lord. What? See, when the, when the heat is turned up, we see where his heart really is. We see who or what he really trusts. And the same is true of us, right? When the heat is turned up in life, it shows us where we trust, what we think we need to be okay, where we look for comfort. But God says, you know what, fine, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. Look at verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God says, Ahaz, you're trying my patience. You told me no when I told you to ask for a sign. I'm going to give you a sign anyways. Here, here's the sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then verses 15 and 17 goes on to say that before this, this special child is grown, these two kings that are giving you problems, Ahaz, they're going to be conquered. It's going to show that they're not a threat to you any longer. And this child of promise, this Emmanuel, will be this, this encouraging sign of God's presence and faithfulness to his people amidst great trouble. I mean, there, there was and is really no greater comfort or promise than the presence of God, right? Think about it. It's what Adam and Eve enjoyed back in the garden in Joel 1 and 2. The presence of God. Think of the, the tabernacle and the pillar of cloud and fire that went with the people in the book of Exodus. The, the presence of God. Think about Moses saying to God, we're not going to go on ahead into the promised land. We're not going to move from this place unless you go with us, God. We need your presence. Think about what, what David wrote in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's your presence, God. It's how Jesus comforted his disciples in, in Matthew 28, saying, what, surely I am with you always. And it's what we have to look forward to as we look at the end of all things. And Revelation 21.3 speaks of eternity, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Enjoying the presence of God. This is how God wants to comfort his people. This child will be born. And we'll see more of this prophecy in, in chapter 9, that he'll be the prince of peace that he'll be called mighty God, that he'll be the promised king from the line of David, like 2 Samuel chapter 7 promised. And his name, Emmanuel, means God with us. God will protect and preserve his people. Even though Assyria would eventually come in and, and take over and then them on would come to power and the people would be in exile, God was still with his people, preserving them, a remnant that would still work out his plan of salvation, bringing about the Messiah. So naturally, stay with me here, as you're reading through the book of Isaiah, you would wonder, okay, there's this promise made of a virgin giving birth and a son named Emmanuel, so who is this child? Did, did the child ever uh, arrive on the scene? 
See, some interpreters will look at the book of Isaiah and say, well, this prophecy was never really fulfilled at all. We, we never saw that figure in the book. And so the people were left still waiting for the Messiah. And some will say, well, well maybe it was uh, King Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. He shows up later in the book. He was this royal figure that matched part of the prophecy, part of the promise. But no, he didn't quite fit all of it. And then some will say, well, maybe it's Isaiah's son in chapter 8, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. In chapter 8, verse 3, Isaiah's son matches part of the description too in the immediate context, especially it uses very similar language to chapter 7, verse 14 about these two enemy kings and all that would happen there. And I think he at least partially fulfills the promise, but judgment ultimately comes upon Virgin. And God preserves them. But this figure in chapter 8 wasn't born of a virgin. And he doesn't match the rest of the prophecies that we see in the book. Wrapped up with this child that would be Emmanuel. Mighty God. Prince of Peace. And so you read this in chapter 7. And you're like, this feels like a promise without a fulfillment yet. It feels like this sign hasn't fully arrived. Like a story without resolution. Like a, like a Disney movie where the princess or the hero never quite shows up to save the day and you're left waiting. Like a, a game that ends after the third quarter and you're like, wait a second, there's, there's supposed to be more. We didn't see the answer yet. Until we read page one of the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter one, we read this in verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we read along from the Old Testament into the New, and we, we see the events of this first Christmas with Mary and Joseph pledged to be married, and Mary miraculously pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, told by an angel she'll give birth to a son, and look at it again, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew tells us, hey, with, with all of this, with Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus, it all took place to fulfill what the Lord said back in Isaiah chapter 7. Jesus is the fulfillment of the sign and the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the one, right, born of a virgin. Jesus is the one, Emmanuel, who is God with us. And so think with me a little bit about some of the, the implication of that reality. If Jesus really is God with us, what does it mean for us? A few things. First, it shows us what God is like. 
It shows us that God is a personal God, a, a, a relational God. See, it's common for us today to think about God in some kind of uh, vague terms. Thinking about God as some impersonal force that's just out there floating around in the world. A divine energy or uh, good vibes or the universe or some vague notion of something spiritual. It's like a cosmic essential oil that's just kind of dripped everywhere throughout the world. But that's not what we see when we come to the pages of Scripture, right? When we look to Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1, God doesn't reveal himself as some sort of vague spiritual energy. He reveals himself how? As, As a person. Jesus. Of all the signs God could have given, he he gave a child. He came as a person. As Eugene Peterson words it uh, as he translates John chapter 1. He said, God took on flesh and blood and, and moved into the neighborhood. Right? God drew near to us. He walked. And God then knows us and wants a relationship with us. He walked among us. He, he spoke. He, he listens. He has a will. He's a, he's a person that, that wants to know you. If it's true that Jesus is Emmanuel, then that also tells us a lot about who Jesus is, that he wasn't just a man, right? Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just some first century philosopher or poet or moral scribe who said some good things about loving people. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, right? John 1 tells us that the word was in the beginning and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then again, John 1.14, the Word became flesh. So eternal God took on flesh and, and walked among us. This is uh, the doctrine of the incarnation. Could you say that with me? Incarnation. It's a, it's a key Christian doctrine. God in the flesh. God incarnate. God in Abad. God drawing near to us as the person of Jesus. There's, there's some mystery here. As we seek to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, right, and that Jesus is fully God and also fully man, but it means that when we look at Jesus, we see God. Right? Didn't he say that? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When we read the words of Jesus, we read the words of God with the authority of God, or the very creator and sustainer of the universe. Jesus is God with us, meaning that his word and his teachings And his ways are not mere suggestions for us to put on on the shelf with all the other, you know, philosophers and sages of the centuries. But he stands alone. And here's a point I think we really need to see is that if this is true, that Jesus is Emmanuel, then it, it means something profound about how we get to God. Think about how we connect with God, how we can, can be reconciled to God. When, when our relationship with God has been broken by sin, how can that relationship be restored? And see, I don't know about you, but, but life can be overwhelming for me. Life can be exhausting for me. Just trying to make it through the day sometimes and juggle all the responsibilities that we carry. One, one global activist put it this way, I just 
love how honest she is. She says, for me and, and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. And the next one is, I don't have enough time. Worrying. We spend most of the hours and days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already losing. We're already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. <clears throat> Can you relate to that? That feeling of just never enough. Wake up and automatically feel I'm behind. Not, not good enough, not, not powerful enough, not thin enough, not successful enough, not beautiful enough, not smart enough, not certain enough, not safe enough, not extraordinary enough, not secure enough, not strong enough, not clever enough. So, so this is pretty common to the human experience, but, but then, then, so many of the spiritual messages we hear, or uh, otherwise, not even spiritual messages, but the coaching we hear out in the world is, well, just try harder, be better, do more, work at it, figure it out, toughen up, make it happen. Right, look, look within, you have the strength, don't you? Don't you? Don't you? Right? If you look at world religions, you look at the predominant spiritual talk of our age, it's all basically go from the bottom up. Right? There's this spiritual being or God or this state of existence that you want to reach, right? And, and how you get there is you, you work at it. You toughen up. You figure it out. You do better. You, you become better. You, you labor and, and obey or behave. And, and hopefully, if the good outweighs the bad, you make it there. And God will be happy with you. Again, I was reading this book by the Dalai Lama, uh, just because I was curious to see the teachings there, and, and said some, some fine things, plenty of things that we uh, would likely agree with. Talked about doing good in the world, loving people, caring for others. Not necessarily all bad things, but if you, if you take it all and just add it up, it's basically just here's this long to-do list about how to be a good spiritual person. And it's all law, and it's all get to work. Again, let the good scales outweigh the bad. And sometimes then what we do is we think Christianity and the gospel of Jesus is the same thing. It's just another way to climb the ladder, just with some slightly different rules. Be a good person, obey the commands, and hopefully you'll make it. <clears throat> we have to see that the truth of the gospel of Jesus is the exact opposite. The gospel of Jesus actually tells us, hey, you, you can't climb the ladder up. It's never going to work. And the only way for you to be saved actually is God had to climb the ladder down and draw near to you. And so Jesus came to us, Emmanuel, God with us. And God looked at our world and he didn't say, hey guys, this is a real mess. You need to figure this out. You need to clean up your act. Uh, before I ever am willing to draw near or jump into this mess. Well, the gospel is, as Titus 3 verse 5 says, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and, and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. He saved us because he's a merciful and gracious God who came to us and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He didn't just look at us like syrup-soiled kids. 
or slugs or dirty things that that make you want to stay away. He, He sees us in our sin and even still he longs to draw near to us. And he comes close as Jesus, and he he touches us, and he heals us, and he embraces us, not as a child touching a slug, holding their nose and scrunching their face, but as a loving father longing to wrap his arms around us. He says, no, I'm not going to force you to climb the ladder because you can't. I'm going to climb down the ladder and meet you where you are. I'm going to find you. And I'm going to love you. And I'm going to heal you. And I'm going to save you. It's the complete opposite of the climb the ladder approach. Luke 19 tells us Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus tells us that parable, right, of going to find the lost sheep. He came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So I just want to encourage you this morning that God, he sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He's a personal God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He wants to walk with you. He wants you to enjoy life with him now and and forever. And and here in Matthew 20, or excuse me, Matthew 1, verse 21, it it makes us clear about what Jesus came to do, right? You heard it read aloud. She'll give birth to a son, and you were to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Just as Ahaz in Isaiah 7 needed protection and rescue from trouble, so we need rescue from our sins, from death, from the judgment that we deserve because of our sins. And so Jesus came to us. And at Christmas, we celebrate his birth, knowing that his life will end where? At the cross. Knowing that he came to die, that in the plan and wisdom of God, Jesus would take our sin and our shame and carry it upon himself so that we would not have to carry it any longer. All the judgment for sin would be placed upon him, and he would die so that we could live. And friends, that's what we get to celebrate every time we take communion so this is a communion Sunday here at FBC, and we invite you, even if, if this isn't your home church, even if you're visiting, uh, we, we practice an open table here, which means we invite anyone who is a follower of Jesus to participate with us in taking the elements. And so uh, on the night Jesus, Jesus was betrayed, he took, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. And so he took these elements and showed us, this is why I came, to give my life for you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, we, we thank you for who you are, that you are Emmanuel, you are God with us. You are uh, the promised sign and, and, and child of, of promise of Isaiah 7. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. You didn't stay far away. You drew near to save us from our sin, to heal us, to bring forgiveness, to reconcile us to yourself. Thank you that you didn't wait for us to figure it out and clean up our act, but you came down to us and met us right where we are. <clears throat> so Jesus, we take these elements in remembrance of you and as an act of worship. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
Well, again, Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.